Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up podcast. Yes, we are still producing content, and I apologize for taking a leave of absence, um, a week of vacation Bible school, and then a week and a half or so of travel. Uh, took me out of pocket for a bit, but uh, I'm back, and I hope to um, give a little of insight that I have for our future readings, uh, even though I will be absent for a week of church camp and another week of vacation right around the corner. And so um, it will be hit and miss throughout the summer, but uh, we're going to slow down our reading plan just a bit for those occasions because I know a lot of our listeners are traveling and have a lot of things on their plate during this summer period. Uh, But we are going to take a brief look at the conclusion of the reading plan we just finished and really dive into the summer reading plan. Uh, So we are transitioning now from the 90 Days of Promise that took us through the book of 2 Kings, and we are going to be jumping into a summer of psalms. And so we'll be reading a couple of psalms each day and taking a look at what God has to say through uh, a different type of literature. And so I'll speak to that in just a second, but I want to begin by just wrapping up the 90 Days of Promise uh, series and talk about the kings that we read about. Um, A lot of those kings are evil. And so as you conclude and get through the book of Second Kings, you start to somewhat get depressed of how evil things are, how bad things have gotten. And uh, obviously the judgment of God comes upon these nations um, of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because of their evil. They're unwilling to uh, abide by the covenant stipulations that were laid out in Sinai. They're unwilling to live up to uh, the covenant that was established between God and his people. They were supposed to go into the land and they were supposed to honor God and only God. They were supposed to live among one another in harmony and to show compassion to one another, to show compassion to foreigners that came through their land. And they were supposed to be a people who were a kingdom of priests who would show the world the living God. And instead, what they do is they violate God's covenant um, stipulations. They turn from God's true worship and they abandon the northern kingdom, at least abandons the temple as a place to access God and to worship God through sacrifices. And instead, they erect altars to foreign gods, and they really, at the end of the day, when you look at all of the kings and you look at all the practices of the northern kingdom and, for the most part, the southern kingdom, you end up seeing a group of people that look exactly like the nations that they were supposed to drive out. They're no different. And so God's not going to treat them any different. If they're going to be just the same as the Canaanites, then God is going to remove them. And he's going to punish them just like he punished the Canaanites for their sin. He's no longer going to be a God who protects them. And so God obviously abandons his temple. And when he leaves the temple, it is now vulnerable and it is susceptible to outside threats like Assyria and Babylon, who eventually comes in and destroys the temple. Uh, The Assyrians come in in 721 BC and they conquer the northern kingdom and then the Babylonians come in in several waves but 586 BC is when we see the temple destroyed 
and we have a group of exiles taken to Babylon from that southern kingdom. Um, there is a few shining lights along the way. One of them worth mentioning is the king Josiah, Josiah, who takes the throne at eight years old. A very young king obviously would have had a um, parent uh, or guardian of some kind helping him in those younger years and assuming authority. But uh, Josiah, he assumes the throne, and at a certain point, he discovers the Word of God. The Word of God is buried somewhere there in the temple precinct, and it is discovered and brought to Josiah. And when he reads it, he is just heartbroken about what they're supposed to be doing and how they've missed it. And it's kind of odd. You almost assume that the people of God would have had these customs and traditions of worship that would have surrounded the temple and um, things as simple as keeping a Passover have been forgotten. And it just shows you how quickly generations can turn from God and how without the word of God there to remind us and to be there as a a memorial, to, to continuously bring to memory the things of God and the works of God, how he has provided for us and protected us and how he is, um, he, how he has saved us. If we don't have something concrete there to remind us of that it, within a generation or two, it's gone. And that's why the word of God is so important. And uh, the book of Josiah reminds us of that. And Josiah was a great king. It says none were as righteous as him before him or after him. And so it's a reminder that even if you come from a long line of scoundrels, you can bring correction. Uh, You can be the new uh, page in the book that changes direction from what came before you. You do not have to be uh, the apple that does not fall too far from the tree. You can be different. And uh, Josiah reminds us of that. But with all of this tragedy and the eventual downfall of Israel and um, the northern and southern kingdom, uh, we're leaping into a completely different genre. Uh, We're no longer looking at historical narrative that just tells us the things that happened throughout the history of God's people. But now we're looking into the interpretation of those events from the viewpoint of some of the writers, Uh, particularly uh, David. King David is one of the primary writers of the Psalms, and so we get to see through his eyes how he views these historical events and how he interprets them. From our modern-day viewpoint, when one country attacks another country, we sometimes just get mad at the leaders and the rulers, the king, uh, and so we may, you know, look back at recent events and we see Russia, um, you know, fronting an attack on Ukraine. And there are different ways that we view that and different um, people that we might be angry with and think that some people need to do um, different things in response to that scenario. But the way David looks at these battles and these fights sometimes are not purely looking at the kings, but he's looking at how God is using these nations and how he's moving things around to bring about greater purposes. And as you read through the book of Psalm, you can kind of take notice of how he attributes 
many of the things that happen in the world to God. It's not just happenstance, it's not chance, it's not luck, uh, but rather it's God's divine hand, his sovereign hand moving the pieces. He causes kings to rise and he causes kings to fall. He brings up nations and he tears down nations. Um, and so we look at the psalm as a way to show us some of the detailed inner workings of God and his sovereignty. But um, what is a psalm? A psalm is a type of chant that would have been the musical expression in the ancient world. Uh, whereas we have songs that have certain beats and rhythms and oftentimes words that rhyme, those uh, aspects of music were not uh, a part of the ancient world and their uh, psalter. They were more concerned with ideas than they were with sounds. Even though they might have had music, they might have had instruments, they might have had beats, um, the primary focus of the psalm is on how it compares and contrasts ideas. Um, the major characteristic trait of a psalm, what makes it a psalm, is something called parallelism. And you'll notice this as you're reading through the Psalms. You can almost see these in every single chapter. Every single, really, line of every single chapter is a part of a parallel. And so let's look at Psalm 1, for, uh, for instance. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Well, that is a statement. And by itself, it's like one lane of traffic. But then right beside it, parallel to it, which is why we're called calling this parallelism, is another lane running parallel, or like two tracks, uh, the railroad tracks that run parallel to one another. So we've got, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. And here's a third lane in this particular instance, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And then we have a contrasting idea. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So we see these comparing and contrasting of ideas. Uh, so at the end of that chapter it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Those are two parallel statements. The wicked won't stand in judgment, and they won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. So they're not going to stand before God. They're not going to um, get away with their evil in heaven. And so they're also not going to get away with it among the people of God either, is the two parallel statements running alongside one another. And you can, I'm just going to just randomly flip uh, through uh, the psalm here. And just uh, here I am, Psalm 18:5. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. Okay, those are parallel. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. It's a way of saying the same thing. So this is a comparison parallel. Uh, so sometimes it compares two things. It's saying the same thing twice, but in different ways. Sometimes it's a contrast where it will say one thing and then contrast it. So it might compare the righteous to the wicked. It might compare the wise to the fool but they are contrasting two ideas, and they do so in a way that it's a parallel. And um, there's different names for these parallels. There's syn synonymous parallelism, uh, 
antitypical parallelism, I think was the name of the one that is uh, contrasting ideas, but not that important that you understand the different theological names, but just know that throughout the Psalter and throughout the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament, when there's comparison and contrasting of ideas, it is a form of poetry. It is a form of musical expression, you might say. And oftentimes, new translations of God's Word will even write that out differently. You might have noticed on a page of Scripture sometime that the lines go all the way from the left column to the right column, but then occasionally there'll be a paragraph or two that it's shortened, and they only go like halfway across the page. And you may be like, why did they waste space there? Why didn't they just keep going from the left margin to the right margin? Well, the purpose for that is to show you that that smaller section, that little column that is cut halfway down the page is actually a form of poetry. It's parallelism that it's very noticeable in the Hebrew language or the Greek language, and so that's why it's written that way. I know I have a Bible that is very good at doing this. It's a Holman Christian Standard Bible, and all throughout the psalm, the entire psalms are written where the right-hand side of the page is pretty much empty. And so that's just a, a way that you can help uh, recognize poetry. You know, read Isaiah, and a lot of it is poetry. It has those comparing and contrasting of ideas. Uh, you read a lot of um, almost all the prophets until they get back from captivity. Once they get back from captivity, it's not as poetic. I don't know if that's because of the influence of the Babylonians or if it's because they're not as happy as they once were, but it is certainly less poetic. Um, but we do have a lot of this in the earlier literature, and of course, all of Psalm is poetic. One last thing I'll say about the psalm before we conclude for the day, and we'll pick up next time by maybe introducing different types of psalms, uh, but one thing that I will point out is one of the few genres, and one of the few books in the entire Bible that the little prescript at the top of each chapter is actually inspired. It's a part of the original documents. It's a part of the manuscripts that we have translated from. And so, whereas if you're reading through, let's say, the book of John, and it introduces John chapter 1 with a little prescript that says, uh, the Word of God, or something like that, that's not inspired. That's just humans who, who are making translations have put little subheadings uh, in front of certain content just to help you keep track and to break up the monotony of a bunch of words, and it helps you find your place. Uh, just like the chapter and verse divisions are incorporated by uh, humans, not, not by divine inspiration. Uh, that was added later to help people maneuver through God's Word without a lot of confusion. Uh, however, in the book of Psalms, when you see some of these subheadings that say, uh, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son, like in chapter 3. That little subheading there is a part of the original document that we have. The oldest, trans, or oldest manuscripts, rather, are full of those subheadings, and so it lets us know that those were probably put there uh, by the original author and are a part of the inspired scripture. Uh, so that's just there as a little tidbit piece of information that can just help you know that if it says it's a psalm of David, then it's 
a Psalm of David. We're not guessing. Uh, there's not every single chapter is going to have that subheading, but a lot of them do, and it lets us know who is writing. And anytime you know who is writing, it will help you with the interpretation. Uh, since we know a lot about King David, and we know what he went through, we know what his um, battles were, we know what the threats to his life and to his kingdom were, then by reading it through the lens of the historical David uh, and what we know about him, it might help you with the interpretation. We'll talk more about that in detail in weeks ahead, but uh, for now, enjoy the Psalms and enjoy what God's Word has in store for you. We'll see you next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast. <music>